Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here together with my sister and co-host, Jennifer White. Hello, Yay. Jennifer. Hello. Welcome. I'm here. So as we record this intro, um, I don't think it was actually this the case when we record the uh, the actual interview itself, but during the intro that we're recording, we are all on lockdown orders to stay at home, both here where I am in Colorado and where you are in California. During this time, Jen, I know we're, we're both in situations where we're very lucky that we're, we're currently healthy and have enough to eat, but... What do you miss the most about your life before um, a stay-at-home order? Oh, I mean, the problem for me is my life is really similar. I mean, I already like you can't I even worked, tell that there was a, there's a difference. I I worked from my home office most of the time anyway. I did travel frequently, so it, actually, in some ways, I'm really loving it because I'm not traveling as much. So I'm home more. I mean, like I found the actual act of traveling really, you know, just like the days of travel long and stressful and tiring. And so it was like I'm not having to do those days anymore. I do miss the events or the places I've been and the people I would see right. in but those then, travels. But you would shower then, right? And change your clothes, right? I still showered and changed my oh, clothes okay. before okay. with COVID. I mean, okay. I, I will say the one thing that is different for me is like the freedom to be able to be like, I'm craving something small, you know, like some whatever. And I live like 20 minutes from the store. And so I could just like go, or it was a 20 minute walk. And so I just like go out and walk to the store and just go into the store casually. And it feels like now there's like a sense of you, well, not just that it feels like you really shouldn't just casually go into a store. So like we make a list and we, you know, you do the whole thing. And if you have don't have it, then it's just too bad. And we just wait. I did have a very strange craving for um, ranch dip, like the kind that you make with a packet and like sour cream. And so I did have to put that on my grocery list recently. And um, luckily, my husband very, very kindly brought all those things home. So what about you? What do you miss? Uh, well, I I have always been a big Starbucks fan, and I feel like I'm probably saving a lot of money by not being able to go by. Um, and there are, I feel like it's kind of hilarious jokes. You know, we're only supposed to leave for, you know, essential necessities that fall into that category. But in Colorado, and maybe in California, too, alcohol and cannabis products fall into that category. So there's always jokes oh, that like, yeah. oh, if the police stop you, like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm going to get marijuana. It's fine. And they're like, okay, essential. <laughs> I don't know. I live on a military base, so marijuana is not considered essential here. So I, I can't use that one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but possibly alcohol, I guess, would follow the same. That's not illegal here. Um, but yeah. hopefully there'll be a happy ending and hopefully it's not too far off. But speaking of, you know, kind of dramatic stories with happy endings, I'm very excited to, to share this interview. And it is, you know, one that we've been begging to have Carolyn on for a long time because the story is so, so interesting and so complicated and so amazing also. Um, but I'm just really excited to, to share it with the world. Welcome, Carolyn Topelson, to the show. Carolyn, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And by way of starting, do you want to give an introduction about yourself and your background before we dive into your fascinating story? I would love to. So I am a Denver person. I have lived in Denver most of my life. However, I came to the United States when I was five years old from Mexico City. So I was actually born in a foreign country. 
and uh, I do have dual citizenship. I became an American citizen in 1991, so a long time ago. Which we'll give as a spoiler that that becomes a very important fact in this story. It does, yes. (laughs) It it does, which is why I started there. Right. Um, But uh, as a result of my dual citizenship, I still have family uh, in Mexico City. Specifically, I have two aunts and a couple of cousins who live there who did help me along with my fertility quest. So that's important to understand as I go forward. But um, I'm an attorney here in town and I met uh, Ellen actually through being an attorney and through some business networking events, which Mm -hmm. has led and been extremely helpful in my personal fertility quest. And I got to speak to Jen a few times through this quest as well, just through Ellen. So that's how I met both of you. Yeah. So I I think one of the unique things, especially for our podcast, is having someone who went abroad for treatments and um, not to spoil too much, but for surrogacy. Do you want to tell a little bit about the lead up to where you first sought treatment? Did you go internationally initially or how did you get to that point? Right. So I decided that uh, I wanted to have a child. I'm an older female as far as fertility is concerned. Which is funny. You're not that old, right? But I'm not that old. The unfair It doesn't matter. Yes, right. Once Uh, we hit 30, we're old, right? Exactly. So I was 37 years old and decided that I wanted to become a mom. I was not married and needed to figure out, okay, how do I do this as an unmarried woman who doesn't currently have a partner? Um, And so I started off by thinking about, do I want to freeze my eggs? Do I just want to have a child on my own? And from there, I ended up going to a local clinic here in Denver in order to start talking about my options um, and getting checked out for fertility because I was, after all, 37 years of age. Um, I initially ended up not using the fertility clinic and got pregnant with a friend Um, which the pregnancy resulted in a termination due to some genetic or chromosomal issues, um, which was extremely devastating. Yeah. But it was the right decision for us. And um, from there, he no longer wanted to be involved with the process. So I went back to the fertility clinic. And at that point, I thought, hey, I'm fertile. I'm just going to do this the easy way. And I started with some IUIs. (laughs) Which is totally easy, right? Yeah. Very easy. Just insert a needle and that's it. It's easy. And at that Uh, point, you're using a donor. Is that At this point, I am using a sperm donor, uh, which came from California Cryo. And that was quite of an experience because choosing a donor on California Cryo's website is like (laughs) playing on Match.com or any other dating website, choosing ethnicities and weights and heights and eye color. It's kind of really funny. Yeah. And what did you prioritize? I'm always curious how people make this decision. So for me, I'm Jewish and it was especially important for me to try to have the donor be Jewish as well. Um, at that time, that was especially important. And I also wanted someone who uh, physically looked a little bit more like me as far as being Caucasian um, and not necessarily uh, a different race because I wanted a child who potentially looked looked like me or at least had more of my qualities. So, so did, you, I, did they show you adult pictures or just child pictures for the donor? Uh, you only see pictures of them as children. I think it goes up to the age of about four or five. Yeah. Um, so you looked so, for children that looked like you as a child. Or at least 
children who fit the category of being Caucasian and in my case also Jewish. And then I also looked a lot at their medical history Mm -hmm. and the length of time that the sperm had been in the sperm gene. So I kind of nixed anybody whose sperm was older than a certain year. Um, And then finally it got to a point where I decided that I wanted somebody who had either B or O blood types because that's what I am. And I thought that I was reading something that blood A types and B types don't usually mix well. And so therefore it's harder to get pregnant when you have those two different type of bloods. Interesting. Interesting. I have no idea if that's true. I read that somewhere and I needed a factor to eliminate the millions of wonderful Sure. (laughs) Right? You had to get it down somehow. Exactly. Did you look at factors like had they had other people conceived from their donations or how many or anything along those lines? You know, I did not. Did they have that? Maybe they didn't even have it. I don't know. Uh, I cannot remember if they did or didn't. It may. I think it says they have had live births, mm-hmm. but I can't honestly remember now because it's been a couple of years since I've looked at that. Um, but I did end up looking um, at the personality tests oh, that they did and yeah. also okay. listening to their recordings of why they were giving sperm. Oh. So one of the things was when I was, I came down to two people at the end. Um, who both had great uh, medical histories. They looked fabulous. And one of them was an extreme introvert. And the other one was an extreme extrovert. I am an extrovert. And I thought to myself, I'd rather have a child who's an extrovert because I know how to deal with that. <laughs> than <an introvert. laughs> wow. That's so, funny. Okay. So you chose someone. And I then chose you someone. back to the clinic here in the U.S. And how did that go? Um, I was, after my three failed IUIs, I did try IVF. And at that point, the first time it failed and the doctors didn't really know why. And they just basically said, well, you know, 30% of the time it just doesn't work and we don't really know a reason why. And the second time we tried again and it failed again. Now, the only commonality between my first IVF round and my second IVF round was that my uterine lining wasn't thickening to a point that the doctors wanted. So generally when you do IVF with a transfer, they want your lining to arrive at about eight millimeters at the least. So usually they are looking for it to be between eight and I think 12. And I was barely getting up to six millimeters. Oh, wow. Um, So they gave me so many medications. I was on a very, very heavy medication protocol in order to thicken my lining. Uh, my doctor said she had had success with people having linings of 6.3. I did get to about 6.3, 6.4. We did do the implantation again. It failed for the second time. And the only thing they could think of is that the because my lining wasn't thickening, that there was a problem with implantation. So they started to recommend that I think about using a gestational carrier at that point. Um, at which point I freaked out and I started fact gathering. Natural reaction, how- yes. I, right. I, I suspect that's about when I met you, yes, is when we were talking that, about that. Exactly, exactly. So I first call I made was to Ellen and said, help, tell me how this works. And she connected me with, with Jen and we, the three of us had a conversation about how gestational carriers work here and you all provided me with wonderful information about costs and sort of the process. Um, in all fairness, I was not ready to give up at that point. And I was, I had already spent a lot of money 
um, pretty much everything I had on the first two rounds of IVF and um, looking at the prices for gestational carriers was extremely overwhelming. Um, and the fact was I had no embryos left. So I was going to have to do a retrieval again, which would have been the third retrieval and third set, uh, well, actually fourth retrieval for me, but third time that I had actually made embryos because I had a retrieval without any embryo creation. And so I, that was a lot to process. It's a lot on your body. And I started, at that point, I was pretty upset and I had gotten my information here in the U.S., and I was talking to one of my cousins in Mexico. And interestingly, she's like, it's so funny you call me right now about this because I had a patient and my, my cousin is a dentist. She's like, I had a patient who I had seen six months earlier and she walks in the other day with a two month old baby. And I looked at her and I said, I saw you six months ago and you were definitely not pregnant. <laughs> and so the patient's like, you're right. I did not have the baby myself. It is my genetic child, but I used a gestational carrier. And so my cousin started asking questions. Oh, what doctor did you use? What surrogacy company did you use? And all of this is in Mexico City. And so she found out, and as she got the name of the fertility doctor, it turned out that it was her sister-in-law's father. So, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so her husband's youngest brother had married a woman whose father is a very good fertility doctor. And my cousin wasn't actually aware that he was still practicing because he's an older gentleman. Yeah. And so she called him and said, the doctor and said, hey, I have a cousin in the United States. They're telling her she can't get pregnant. Would you speak to her? Would you talk to her? Etc. Yeah. So my cousin calls me and says, tells me the story. And it's like, you have to call this doctor. And so she connected us and we spoke. And I was at that point just really getting a second opinion of, is it true that I personally cannot carry a child? Because yeah. that is what I was being told here in the United States, yeah. right. that there was really no way of doing it. So he asked if I could come to, to Mexico so that he could check me out. And I sent him all my medical files and we met. He checked me out. He looked at my numbers and he said, you know, I really don't understand why your lining isn't growing. Hmm. And it doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, based on all your numbers, you should be able to have a child. Why don't you give me a chance and we'll try it here? And so, you know, I, at that point I didn't know what to do, but I wasn't ready to give up. So yeah. I decided to try one more time of IVF on myself. And one of the big factors at that point was that to try again in the United States would have cost me $30,000. Yeah. And all in in Mexico was 8,000. Inclusive. Of, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Inc including the medications, the doctor's visits, everything. Now, granted, that also meant that I had to go to Mexico for a month. Right. To do the whole transfer process oh, and do all the medications. You have to go and stay. Oh, yeah. And that's what I was going to ask on the logistics front, because you're an attorney. I mean, you can't just like, I mean, some attorneys have caseloads that they can get up and move and work remotely, but were you able to do that or did that just completely disrupt your life? Um, it disrupted my life completely. However, uh, I am a solo practitioner and I maneuvered it to have coverage for any cases where I needed to go to, to trial. And okay. otherwise I can work remotely. And I had phone calls on the, you know, phone calls internationally. People did not know I was in Mexico. I just right. uh, would tell my clients that I could not meet in person and how to do everything by the phone. Mm -hmm. I had one court hearing that was a very small one for a case where I had a colleague cover for me. 
Um, but otherwise, I did everything from Mexico City on the phone. I had Wi-Fi. I had my phone and my computer. Yeah. So isn't, I was able isn't to technology work. awesome? Yeah. Oh, technology <laughs> is great. Technology is wonderful. Uh, so I did go down to Mexico. I was lucky enough that I didn't have to pay for a hotel because I did stay with my aunt. So that was really nice. And my aunt and uncle actually were wonderful and supportive. Uh, would go with me to major doctor's appointments, such as the transfers and retrievals and things of that nature. So um, we, my doctor in Mexico wanted us to try a, uh, a fresh transfer and not a frozen transfer. Okay. And he um, actually believes that frozen transfers create more stress on the embryo because you freeze mm. them and then thaw. And in that process, it creates more stress, which can cause less likelihood of getting pregnant, which is sort of the opposite of the of the theory here in the United States right now. And, yeah. and he likes to do a three-day genetic test, chromosomal test on the embryo, which they, PG, uh, PGD, I believe it's called. And it's uh, they used to do them in three days in the U.S., but now they prefer to do them once the egg hatches at five days yep. and right, right after it's frozen. So we actually did a fresh check of the embryos. I had three good embryos, both, all three of them were healthy and great. Um, and we did a fresh transfer. Uh, at that time I decided to try a double transfer, uh, knowing that I could yeah. have twins prior to that in the U S my two previous IVF attempts had been single transfers. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it did not work. Um, uh. again, the doctor interestingly did get my lining up a little bit more than any time here in the United States. My lining did get to about 6.6. Um, he had thought I had about a 4% chance of having a child at that point. Oh. Um, so at that point, he said, you know, we do have a person in our office who deals with gestational carriers, and you still have an embryo left. So if you want to try, we can connect you with that person and get you to do a surrogate here in Mexico. Um, and I did look into the cost, and I will be honest, the cost was half the price of the United States. Uh, and frankly, I was out of money. My parents were helping me. And so it seemed like that may be the right path for me. Plus I still had an embryo left. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't have to go through the emotional and physical drama and trauma of having to have another embryo made. And remind me, so I don't think this is an available option if you are just a U.S. citizen, right? It became, it was only an option for you because you're also a Mexican citizen. Is that right? Uh, not 100% true. You can do surrogacy in Mexico, international surrogacy in Mexico. You just have to be extremely careful of where you go. So mm. Mexico, just like the United States, is divided into states. Mm -hmm. And so... Many of the states, I would say probably 90% of the states, have no laws regarding surrogacy or international surrogacy. Got it. There are, <clears throat> there are, I think, three states. I know one is the state of Tabasco and one is the state of Sierra. They have specifically outlawed international surrogacy. Got because, it. I think this is Tabasco and I'd heard of when they changed the law to say right. no non-citizens could use it there. Correct. Because what was happening is that all these agencies were going into Tabasco and it's a fairly poor state and mm. they were getting all these women to basically become surrogates and it was becoming an industry. Got it. And so that there are specific laws you can, so you can do surrogacy in Mexico as an American citizen. Um, you just have to be extremely careful about what agency you go with um, and where they are located. 
Uh, Mexico City, much like Washington, D.C., is not really part of any state. It's its own being, if you will. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And so I did all of mine in the city of Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And so there are no specific laws against or for uh, any local surrogacy or international surrogacy. It's just the state is or the city is completely quiet about that issue. Got it. And Mexico is a place where if there are no laws, go ahead and do what you want. (laughs) So you decide to go forward with surrogacy in Mexico. And my understanding is that process looks very different than it does in the United States. Can you tell us about how that looked, the matching and the relationship, et cetera? Of course. And I I should mention, uh, the one thing I forgot to mention is that when I did my, my round of IVF in Mexico City, I actually could not bring in the sperm that I had bought at California Cryo in the United States. Hmm. Um, I did look into it and transporting human product. Tissue product, whatever they want to call it. Tissue product, yes. (laughs) In and out of the United States um, is extremely difficult. And you can get stuck in, in, in customs for up to two or three days. Wow. So it's not recommended. Just not good when you're carrying something that's frozen. Correct. It's not recommended. And also you need to have a special visa to do it. And that attaining that visa can take upwards of six months. Wow. So I just decided to buy new sperm in Mexico. The process was similar. Uh, The bank that I was using was actually through my fertility doctor. He has a reserve of uh, a small reserve of uh, sperm that he on file that of a bank he uses. And uh, I picked a international sperm donor who was from Italy. And I also had a couple of baby pictures of him. The medical history was not as extensive as California cryo, but I did get a medical history. And I knew height, weight, hair color, things of that nature. Got it. Still Jew- still Jewish? No, they did not have any Jewish people. So I just sort of said, okay, what? Yeah. Witness. Yeah. Here are my options. Okay. Right. I feel like sometimes it's like easier and makes us happier, like to have less choices. <laughs> like having too many choices makes us like overthink it and kind of like blame ourselves if it's not the right choice. Like, okay, this is what I had. So I went with it. That's correct. It was a lot easier choice and I made it in about a day as opposed to three weeks. Uh, right. So I already had my embryo. So the the way that the surrogacy company that I used in Mexico works, and they do some international surrogacy, this this particular uh, office uh, does do some international surrogacy uh, because they do speak English. Uh, they do, they've had a handful, they told me, of international people who have used them. But you also speak Spanish, which made your life so much easier there, I assume. Uh, correct. I speak fluent Spanish. So I did everything. All my transactions were in Spanish. Yeah. Although the doctor I use speaks fluent English because he is an American trained and has worked in the United States as a fertility doctor as well. So he's got, he's done both. Got it. Uh, so he, you know, if, if there was ever a medical question, because sometimes medical terms I didn't know in Spanish, mm-hmm. he was great and could understand the question. Go to English. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But anyways, so the way that the surrogacy company works there is they find the match for you and you don't really have a choice. You can either say yes or no, I want a match. And all you really get told about your surrogate is that they are healthy, that they've had previous children of their own and that they've had simple pregnancies. Uh, that's about it. I did not know the name of my my gestational carrier. I did not know really anything other than she was younger than I was, 
and that she was healthy. That's amazing. It's such a contrast to hear where you really know a lot. Like, what does she do? Where does she live? What does her home environment look like? What are her motivations for doing this? All of that. That's that's amazing. Um, In all fairness, I will say that the motivation of most of the the women who do gestational care, uh, gestational services in Mexico is likely money, simply because they tend to be less well off. Um, And so this is a way that they can get some amount of money. uh, Although technically what you are paying for in Mexico per the law is not compensation for them carrying your child, but it's compensation for their medical expenses, there are some like food and some other of those types of services yeah. because technically you can't compensate somebody for being a gestational carrier specifically. Right. And I'm guessing the compensation numbers are significantly lower than what is the, the norm here in the U.S. That is correct. It is significantly lower, but also take into account that the cost of living is very different. Right. Right. Okay. So did you, did you meet? Did you not meet? How did that, how did that go? So I get a call that they have found a gestational carrier for me and that she is prepped and ready to go, but that I need to sign the surrogacy contract. So I have to fly back out to Mexico, but the only time that I can fly out based on the timing of everything was the day after she would have had to get implanted. Hmm. So we went ahead and had her get the implantation done. And I flew. Uh, oh, so they oh, wow. transferred so it without a before contract. you even signed legal. Wow. Well, I'm trying to remember. Actually, I take that back. They started her on her meds. I'm sorry. They started okay. her. So, they okay. started preparing her for the transfer prior to me signing the contract. That's right. Got so it. she had already okay. started the meds, um, and I came out uh, for literally 36 hours to Mexico, and I met with some lawyers that had been given to me by the surrogacy company. Uh, They had a contract. We reviewed it somewhat. And I will say quite amusing because I like as an attorney, we reviewed it somewhat. In all (laughs) fairness, I speak fluent Spanish, but my legal Spanish is very mediocre. So I Uh read the contract. I sat in these attorneys offices and I was Googling words that I've never used before in Spanish to learn the translation into English. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because I didn't know how to say hence. Hence, right? <laughs> As I say, there's so many legalisms also that are just not used even in regular English, right? Right. Correct. Correct. So I was translating all the legal ease from Spanish into English on my Google Translator app because I did not know what they meant. I generally understood the contract. After meeting with the lawyers and them asking if I had any questions, they somewhat explained it to me. We went to have it signed before a magistrate. And the way it works in Mexico is you have magistrates and judges and the magistrates also are known as notaries, but they are, Mm -hmm. they have similar powers to what a magistrate in the United States would have. They can adjudicate certain things. Do they, is there like a hearing or have they read the contract or what, what is that aside from here where they're just like confirming your identification? Right. So the way that it worked there is, so we went to this office and there's only about, I think like 50 or something magistrates in all of the Mexico city. So we had a set appointment at a set time and my lawyer and I went to this office and it's where the first time that I met my gestational carrier. She was there with uh, a nurse who is assigned to her through the the agency who monitors and helps to monitor her progress throughout the whole pregnancy. And I met my surrogate. Her name is Viri. And she and I chit-chatted for about 10 or 15 minutes at that point. And that was the very first time I met her. 
Wow. wow. And how did, how did you feel? Did you instantly feel like good or just how, what was that like? It felt good. She seemed extremely sweet, conscientious. She looked healthy, which I think was really important to me. Uh, she understood what her obligations would be, that she couldn't drink, that she couldn't take drugs, that you know she had to eat healthy, all of these kinds of ideas she was totally on board with. She told me that she had three children of her own, and she told me that she's a single mom. Uh, her kids at the time were, I think, 11 or 12, I can't remember, and three and four years of age. So clearly somebody who had a lot of fertility. Yeah. And so at that point, after chit-chatting for a little bit, we went into a room and a assistant came in and handed everybody a copy of the contract that we were going to sign and just ensured that this was, in fact, the contract that we were going to sign. We all reviewed it. There was one mistake. The mistake was then fixed, at which point the magistrate walked into the room. The magistrate read the contract to both myself and the gestational carrier, Very. Oh, wow. How long was the contract? I mean, for ours, they're like 30, 40, 60, 80, depending. Maybe a long time to read it. Was it that long? I think it was about eight to 10 pages. Okay. So not, not that bad. It was not that long. Yeah. And it just, it just basically talks about human rights and about the fact that she's not being compensated, but getting money for her, her, her maintenance. Uh, it talked about how she understands that she doesn't have any legal claims to this child, that upon birth, that she uh, will give the child to the biological mother and that the biological mm -hmm. mother will have all rights and all uh, formalities related to the child. That's pretty much what the contract said. Uh, the judge then asked if we both agreed and understood everything in the contract. Once we said yes, we signed in front of, in his presence. He did ask for our driver's licenses or passports. In my case, it was my, my Mexican passport. He confirmed what we did for livings, and then he notarized and signed off on this contract. Oh, wow. Okay. Contract done. Contract Transfer. done. About a week, about a month, about three weeks later or two weeks later, she gets transferred. A few, week, a few days later, I get the call. She is pregnant and that wow. the pregnancy took. And Yay. So, oh. so at that point, which is very different from here in the U.S., I had no further contact with my gestational carrier whatsoever. Wow. So you're not hearing like, how's the pregnancy going? Anything? You don't know how it's... Not directly from her. Not from All her. All of okay. my contact went through the fertility doctor that I had used because he is very hands-on and monitors all of his patients personally. Interesting. So she doesn't get switched to an OB. He, she stays with her care with, with that fertility doctor. Yes, he stays. she stays with him uh, as well as with an OB. So there are... Got it. So he, he went, for example, he went to the 12-week not anatomy scan. He was at that 12-week appointment with her where you can see the 3D pictures of everything. Yeah. That's amazing that your fertility doctor went to that appointment. Right? He went and to that appointment. Is that, do you think that was because he's basically a family friend or do you think... Is that normal? You know, I actually am not sure. Um, yeah. His, his, what I will say is what's amazing to me is that every time I went in to see him for my fertility treatments myself, he always received me personally. You know, the nurses would, would just be in the room with him because he doesn't want any issues of a man and a woman being alone, but he did everything. The nurses really did not take an active role like they might when I was 
uh, here in the United States where you would go in for your ultrasound check and you wouldn't necessarily see the doctor. You would just talk to the, you know, the, the ultrasound tech. Yeah. And then your nurse would call you and give you the results. He personally did everything. He would tell me what my medications were. Uh, he would tell me how to administer it. So I actually think that's part of what the differences in medicine in Mexico and the United States is that doctors there still have a lot more hands-on with their patients than here in the States. Interesting. So things are going well. I want to interject on that. No, no, I say I found that when we were in Germany too, is that doctors were a totally different role than nurses were when we lived over there. So it could be that just culturally they have different roles in things in different, different places around the world. So anyway, sorry, yeah. onward, but sense. I just wanted to interject. Yeah. I've seen that in other countries as well. Sure. So your surrogate's pregnant. Everything's going well. The dreams of becoming a mother are getting close to coming true. Any, um, any surprises or twists in your story that you want to share? <laughs> uh, before I share the twist and surprise in my story, um, yes. part of the reason that I was told not to co- contact my gestational carrier directly is there are concerns about gestational carriers trying to bribe or blackmail intended parents. So my understanding is that was not unique. Oh, just like for your protection. That's interesting. So that the gestational carrier doesn't really know what the intended parents income and status or class, because that's important in Mexico still really is. My understanding is that, idea of not having contact with them or relationship wasn't just because I lived in the United States. It was for all of their, their patients and clients and for their protections. And all. that's interesting. So yeah, yeah, so the doctor did go and I would get weekly and updates through email and I would get copies of all the reports on the baby as, as he was progressing and things like that. So Oh, is he? So we have have a he. And I actually Mm. knew it was a boy before implantation because unlike the United States, when I was told that I had embryos, I was told how many boys and how many girls, (laughs) which was a shock to me because I had not had that experience before. Uh, I think that's pretty common here. I see it sometimes. It depends on the clinic. Some will and some won't disclose. Okay. Well, my clinic did not disclose, so that was a shock to me. Got it. So um, as... About two months after my gestational carrier is impregnated and everything's going forward, I was introduced to my now husband. <gasps> Yay! Aww. I feel like that's such a like a such a rom com, right? I think there's a J Lo one where she's she's pregnant with twins and then meets someone because she decided to become a parent on her own. Anyway, so how did that date go? Where you're like, I'm pregnant? Well, not really? Not, not directly. <laughs> uh, it was about a month after we had met him, and we've been dating for a month. And you're like so, exactly. So we're sitting in my house, drinking a bottle of wine and having a really nice dinner. And I said, so yeah. there's something I have to tell you. Oh, I would have loved to see that conversation. And my husband is a medical professional. And the first thing he goes is, you're drinking wine. (laughs) Well, and I was like, it's not actually me. And I told him the whole story. And he was absolutely fabulous and told me that as this is progressing, he doesn't care if it's not his own child and that he wanted to continue dating me. It was just wonderful. Um, So he and I continue our relationship and my gestational carrier keeps doing really, really well. My son was due to be born 
February 9th, which was is his birth date. Um, and that was the 40 week mark. And uh, in early January, I'm sitting at home one night and I'm thinking, huh, I haven't had my period. <laughs> I was like, that's weird. When was my last period? And I'm looking at my app because for some reason I had gotten so used to over the past three years keeping track of it, even though I was no longer doing fertility treatments of any sort, I was still keeping track. And I was like, huh, I'm late. That's weird. And then I had a dream that I was pregnant. I'm like, that's even weirder. And so I was anxious and I went out and bought myself a pregnancy test even though I had been told that I could not be pregnant, that I could not carry. Right, and I'd gone through all right. these, all these and attempts. Lo and yes. behold, I was pregnant. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and how did, like, what was your reaction? How did you um, feel? My, my initial reaction is, this isn't true. No, the tests are wrong. <laughs> and I proceeded yeah. to take about six of them. They all came back positive within 10 seconds of peeing on the stick. Um, I made an, uh, at that point, it was about January 10th. And my fertility doctor had thought that my son was going to be born early because my gestational carrier had a history of giving birth with all three of her children at 38 weeks. And so they wanted me to be in Mexico a little early for the birth, just in case uh, my son came early. And so it's about January 5th or something. And I'm freaking out because I'm leaving for Mexico in about 15 days. Right. And <laughs> I wanted to go to the doctor and make sure that the pregnancy tests were true. And that I was really worried that because my issue had been my lining, that somehow the lining wasn't just going to dissolve and I was going to lose the baby and have a miscarriage. So I made an appointment and I pushed my, OB doc, my OB's office to get me in as quickly as humanly possible. Uh, they were very kind and wonderful and they did that for me. And they did in fact confirm that I was pregnant. I was terrified that I would move the wrong way and I would have a miscarriage. Oh. And you're about to fly internationally and go stay in Mexico. So that's got to be... Uh, hard to it was very hard uh the only saving grace was that i knew my fertility doctor and i did have family in mexico so i went down to mexico on about january 22nd if memory serves correctly and started to wait for the birth of my child and the first thing i did was call the fertility doctor in mexico and say so and he looked at me and said well i told you you had a four percent chance to get pregnant i'm like four <laughs> <4%. laughs> uh, percent i told and you I was like, yes that was a year ago when i was 39 i am now 40 almost 41 i am not sure what you're what this means <laughs> So um, he was super kind and he checked me out and he proceeded to actually take care of me through all the time that I ended up in Mexico while I was there with my son. I love she says I ended up in Mexico because that means we're alluding to something else, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So originally I was under the impression that 
my stay in Mexico would be fairly quick. And after my son was born, I would be able to return to the United States about three or so weeks after he was born. Yeah. And you're, I mean, again, you're having to like rearrange your law firm. So you're thinking, okay, I'm there for a month and a half or two months. Correct. And, I'm back. and at that point I did have, I had hired an of counsel to help me at my law firm. And I'd also hired an associate to help keep my law firm alive because I did have a lot of, of cases going on at that point. And I was thinking this is a maternity leave. So unlike my prior time where I'll be able to work from Mexico, I felt that working with a newborn was going to be very, very difficult. I did set it up as a maternity leave. Um, Before I left for Mexico, I had spoken to various attorneys here in Colorado, gotten advice as to what I was going to need to do once my son was born to get him his American passport, uh, to get back to the United States. I looked into what does it mean to have a child born abroad with respect to American citizenship. I had done all this research and I thought, wonderful, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I have all the documents that the lawyers have told me I needed. (laughs) And then any other twist? I was completely wrong on everything. (laughs) Oh, no. What happened? So my son was born and the agency that I used told me that they were going to help me get all the documents that I would need to show that I had a birth certificate. Little did I know exactly what that meant as far as the process in Mexico. So in Mexico, like in the United States, when a child is born, the hospital gives you a a certificate of live birth, which is very similar to what you get here in the States. Now, I will add this little piece that I was in the hospital when my son was born. However, I was not permitted in the room. I just had to wait for the lobby. Interesting. And um, the hospital did not know that the surrogate was a surrogate. They just assumed that she was the mom. Is that intentional on their part, though? It was intentional on the part of the surrogacy company, yes. The only people who knew she was a a gestational carrier were my fertility doctor, who was present at the birth and sent me a lot of very um, graphic pictures. Uh, So it was as though I was in the room. Wow. And... um, (laughs) The OB also knew that it was not her child, that it was mine. The hospital also was told that because she did not feel well, she had a slight cold as she was giving birth, that the baby would stay in the nursery and not in the room with the mom. And that I would be coming to feed the baby on behalf of the mother as a family relative. Oh, interesting. So after he was born, I was able to see him about, I think it was about two or three hours after his birth. Um, at which point he had already been cleaned up. I did not get to do skin-to-skin contact initially. Um, that did happen later on, but not immediately. Um, and he was in the nursery for about 30 hours, at which point they released him to my care and we left the hospital uh, simultaneous with my gestational carrier. So okay. he, she did meet the baby at 30, like 36 hours when we were told to go away. And, and she went in a cab to her house. And I actually walked home because I was staying at a, an Airbnb about two blocks from the hospital. So I just had a stroller and I wow. walked him home. And we never again saw the surrogate after that point. Um, I have had communications with her. Oh. She has asked me about my son and I have sent her pictures. Um, but it's been very minimal con- uh, contact since then. So... Shortly after he's born, the surrogacy company says, I'll take care of all the paperwork to get you your certificate. Birth certificate. The birth certificate here showed me as the sole parent. I was under the impression that however they do that, 
they do that. I would I did not know this process at the time. So the the surrogacy company took the live birth certificate with them and then told me that they were going to be sending a magistrate to the apartment that I was staying in to make it easy on me so that I could sign the papers that needed to be signed in order to get the birth certificate. So a magistrate came to my apartment and I signed some documents, which frankly I did not read. And lo and behold, I had a birth certificate the next day. I then took that birth certificate with all the documents I had brought with me from the United States to the American embassy. I learned that you had to have a few things with you. The first is you have to make an appointment which takes about a week. It is not immediate. And so I had done that. And I, I'd also learned that you need to do, there is basically a two-step process when you have a child born abroad in order to confirm citizenship and get passports. So the first thing is, is that you have to prove that the child is genetically yours. And then you have to prove your legal status as associated with the child so that you can sign the passport as the legal parent. Okay, so DNA tests, easy some, enough. How yeah, so for the DNA, well, no? it is, okay. that, that was... Maybe not? Okay, the, no, maybe that not. That was the easiest part. But the way that they do the DNA test is that you have to set up the DNA test from a lab in the United States who sends the, the stuff to the American embassy. There are people at the embassy who actually administer the DNA test, so they do the... the the swabs for you there. So you have to have an appointment for that, which is separate and apart from the appointment for the passport. So you need two separate appointments, which isn't really explained to you a hundred percent. I may, I've set up the lab, uh, which is in in Texas to do the DNA test. They send over all the stuff. I go for that appointment. They do a DNA swab on me, on my son that gets sent away. Um, and then I pay for extradited services to get the DNA results back quickly because otherwise it could take a week or two. I paid for like the 72 hour turnaround, which is more expensive. Okay. Yeah. So you can get it, go home in a few right. days. Great. So go I on. get the DNA results. I am 99.928% his parent. <laughs> You're like, oh, good. <laughs> not really sure why it's not 100%, but I've been told that they never know yeah. if there is a identical twin out there. Uh, okay. Oh, right. right. Okay. Good. So, That's true. Um, citizenship is conferred to children through their parent, as long as they are genetically connected to an American citizen. So because the DNA was connected to me and I'm an American citizen, he was uh, identified as an American citizen at that time. Hey, easy peasy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now we have to deal with getting the passport. So I had been told that in order to get a passport you have to uh, for your child, you have to show that the parent has lived in the United States for, and I don't remember if it's one year or five years. I don't really remember the exact amount. There's been, Ellen probably knows better than I do because there's been lawsuits over the length of time because at one point it was different for men and women. Oh, wow. Right, uh, yeah. But that's all the same now, if I recall correctly. So I was told to bring with me evidence of living in the United States. So I took with me deeds for my house, the lease for my office. I believe I took with me some pay stubs or... You're like an extra suitcase worth of documents. Right. Um, and you have to fill out this application, which is a little bit weird, but I get fine. The application was weird because one of the questions is your physical presence in the United States is one of the questions. And I had literally Mm -hmm. put in there, you know, I lived in 
Denver from this time to this time. And then I went to Boston for college and I went to Washington, D.C. for law school. And these are my dates and uh, all of that. And it just said, you know, to present. And the first person stops me and goes, well, you're not there right now. So how can you say you still live there? I'm like, seriously, I'm confused by your question. She's like, we need to know every time you've taken vacation, haven't been physically present in the United States. Oh, my goodness. And I said, I'm sorry. You want me to tell you every vacation I've taken for the last 40 years? She goes, yes. (gasps) And I said, I don't believe that's the intent of this question. I'm not going to answer it. So let me speak to your supervisor. And at this point, what I learned is that there are two type of employees at the Mexican, at the American (laughs) embassy. There are the employees who are Mexican nationals who work for the American government. And then there are the Americans who work for the American government. Mm -hmm. The Mexicans are very rigid and they're very literal. The Americans understand what's going on. So by the time I got to the supervisor, who was the person who actually does the intake, he's like, no, we do not need to know every time you've left the United States. Right. We just need to know that you live there, which is how I'd answered the question to begin with. So, yeah. So I give him my documents and he goes, yeah, these documents aren't good. What we really need is like something from Social Security that shows that you've been paying taxes and that you've been paying into Social Security. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I just need my tax that. returns. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think I even had my tax return for the prior year. No, I didn't because it was January. It was February. I hadn't filed my taxes for 2018 yet. Oh my goodness. Right. And so I had, I think I had my 2017, something like that. So thankfully there is a social security office in the American embassy. He sent me over there. They were able to print out my work history I was able to give that to him and he goes, great, you've now proven your status in the United States. So what I've learned is that the website that tells you what to bring is wrong and you should just bring your work history from Social Security. Wow. Okay. But also, what if you had been a, and sorry, just totally like stay at home spouse, you know, like, and you didn't have an income to prove, like that still doesn't mean you're not a U.S. citizen and didn't reside in the United States. It, It just means whether you earned an income in the United States. That doesn't affect your citizenship. Correct. And I, I have no idea how to answer that one. So Yeah, no, no, I, I know. I'm sorry. Things. I'm just like thinking out loud as we're going yeah. there. <laughs> no, and, and I think that at that point, you could use some of these, you know, other documents, the fact that okay. you have an XL Energy or, you know, energy bill in your name, the fact that you own property. Yeah. Um, right. I think you could probably show a rent agreement, a lease agreement, uh, anything that would kind of show or prove residency is really what they're looking for. Okay. So you're proved that you're resident. So you're good. You're headed, I'm you're headed, headed home. I think I'm headed home and I leave all my documents that they've asked for. I've given them the birth certificate that I've received for my son. I've given them uh, the surrogacy contract. I think I even gave them the medical records showing the transfer. And I've given them a whole bunch of stuff. And they tell me we'll get to be in touch soon. About... Four or five days later, I get a call that they want to see me at the embassy. And at that point, I'm freaking out. I don't know why. I go in and they tell me that they will not accept my son's birth certificate as true and valid. And that they believe that fraud was committed in obtaining it. What? And I'm like in tears, have no idea. Are they like, are they... 
accusing you of something or is like uh, they're not accusing me of anything but they're saying that okay. there has been a lot of fraud in mexico over the uh, obtaining uh, birth certificates and so they look into the dossier that is provided to the department of vital records of mexico to figure out how the birth certificate was obtained and okay. as i said i had signed something before a magistrate that i didn't read apparently what i did not read was that they had changed who the birth mother was from my surrogate to me. So the birth certificate said oh. that I gave birth to my son as opposed to the gestational carrier. I was under the understanding that because we had the contract and we had all this stuff, that, that was what was provided to the vitals records. And so those documents, which clearly state out that while she is the birth canal, I was the legal and biological mother. And so mm-hmm. I wasn't aware. And that's, I only learned that after four or five days of investigating, the American embassy was not very clear with me, nor did they provide me much information. They said, we think there's fraud, but we're not gonna tell you what it is or what to do. And so at that point, I'm freaking out slightly. And I understand that they now want a court order that says that I am the legal parent. So um, as I'm sure Ellen knows perfectly, and Jen, you probably know as well, once intended par- once a child is born through a gestational carrier, the intended parents need to get a parentage order from the courts to prove that they have legal rights to the child, right, in the U.S. That's, in essence, what the U.S. government was requiring of me from a Mexican court. Was Which is probably not set up to do that. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm at this point, like, I don't know how to get that because I don't even know that Mexico does that because there are no surrogacy laws in Mexico. And Mexico has already recognized my son is my son and I'm me as the legal parent. So I'm in this legal conundrum and I've asked the American embassy for help on finding lawyers. And what they do is provide me with a list of like 25 lawyers that speak English that may or may not deal with these issues. Awesome. And probably right. not because it's awesome. new, right? right? That's not a common right issue. so i'm trying to figure out what to do with my gestational with my surrogacy company who at this point is becoming really really weird Uh-oh. oh no and i i don't even know what to do or how to deal with it and is your is your doctor helping or what's he because he's the he's family basically, he doesn't right? know anything and as he pointed out he okay. stays out of the legal piece he just did the transfers he's taking care of me and that's the other thing i'm yeah. pregnant and he's taking care of me he's setting up appointments right. for me to get my 12-week scan and he set up an appointment for me right. to get my maternity 21 test done or the free cell test done to make sure that there's no problems with the the baby that I'm carrying and he's yeah. so he's yeah, right. not to forget that you're pregnant during right. right and possibly yeah. have morning sickness and everything else <laughs> thankfully I did not have morning sickness oh, but I was exuberantly tired I was very oh. very tired oh. um and so he's taking care of me I have a newborn the American embassy is not really helping me I don't understand what to do here and I'm starting to piece together that I need a parentage order which from my understanding doesn't exist in Mexico because there are no laws on surrogacy. Yeah. Oh, so that sounds frustrating. Extremely. And <laughs> at this point, my Airbnb oh. that I had set up is now done. Wow. Cause you were expecting, to be, expecting to be home by now. So I moved to my wow. aunt's house with my father and my mother who had been with me up until that point got sick and had to come back to the United States. 
I will say I was very lucky. The one thing about Mexico is that uh, nurses that help take care of children are extremely inexpensive. And so I did have a night nurse who was with me from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. every day. Um, So that would allow me to sleep since I was falling asleep at about nine and waking up at about eight myself. Because I was so tired. Um, and if I needed her, she had a friend who could come during the day to help us out if we had to do things with the embassy or things like that who could stay with the child. I did have a lot of help, thankfully. Um, so at this point, I moved to my aunt's house, and I'm talking to my aunts. I'm talking to my cousins. I'm saying, who do you know? What lawyers do you know? Who can help me? Yeah. Uh, so my aunt sets me up with one woman who thinks that she can help me, but she's telling me that the process could take up to six months, if not longer. Oh. <sighs> Um, at the same time, I get connected with this other attorney who the first time I speak to him freaks me out and tells me or it makes me feel as though I'm going to be arrested because of this potential thing about fraud. And I'm wow. in like tears and he wants to have an appointment oh. with me and this criminal attorney he knows. And oh, I'm yikes. freaking wow. out. So I um, end up meeting with both the attorney my aunt set up for me and this attorney who's a family law attorney with his friend who's a criminal law attorney. And I am freaking out. Um, The nice thing was when I met the criminal law attorney, the first thing he says to me is, everybody's overreacting. No one's going to arrest you. There will be no criminal charges filed against you. Don't even worry about it. Thank goodness for that. Good, good, Good to start with that. Thank you. (laughs) That calms me down. And the next thing he said to me is, one of my best friends is a family court judge who is advising us on how to handle this situation. And so between him and his friends who are family law lawyers, they believe that they can get this done for me. And they, they set forth a path, I guess, of how this process is going to work, what it's going to look like, and how they're going to, in essence, get me a parentage order. And what's the path? What's the plan? Uh, the plan is basically to plea and hope to God that we get in front of their family, their friend who is the family court judge. Wow. And try to get uh, the case transferred into his docket, basically. They were able to get the case uh, actually assigned to him. My understanding is there was some sort of motion. I don't really know. I, You know what? I have no idea how that happened. But I don't know if it was that it was his turn to be assigned a case or if they asked specifically for a transfer. It's a little unclear to me, but we were able to get in front of them. What we did have to do is, in essence, sue my gestational carrier. Uh, Wow. And so at that point, we did get her involved and ask her to accept service of process and basically confess. But explaining that, like, it's not it's not bad. We're just clarifying Correct. this thing. And she understood right? that this was all for the American government. We explained it to her. She was super cooperative. And she ba- We basically hired an attorney for her who accepted service of process and then basically signed a confession, for lack of a better term, that said, yes, I was the Ugh. gestational carrier and no, I'm not the legal yeah. parent. And to the extent that there are any legal rights associated with me, they have been given back to the to the biological mother. Okay. So the other thing that should be that's interesting to note is that Mexico recognizes biology over uh, birth canals. Okay. So there are cases in Mexico where a biological father was able to show that he is the father uh, 
where there was a gestational carrier uh, who used uh, egg that was purchased without necessarily anything oh, else needed. Oh, so that helped us. Um, and as this process is going forward, I'm it's taking longer than I initially expected. We are now well into March and starting to come up on April. I'm like counting how far along pregnant are you at this point? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm getting into my second trimester at this point. Right. Well into my second trimester. Yes. And the lawyers are dragging their feet a little bit. Uh, they're telling me it should all be done by May 1st. It wasn't done. Um, I'm freaking out. I want to be home. I am coming up on my 20-week appointment, and I wanted to do that in the United States, partly because insurance covers it here. Yeah. And I would have had to pay out of pocket in Mexico for the doctors to do it there. So I'm arranging my whole life to come home for three days to leave my son in Mexico and basically deal with that. And I will say that I actually had come home already one time, left my son in Mexico and my brother actually flew out to Mexico to take care of him with some, my night nurse who was helping us and her friend who was, they were basically there with my brother 24 hours a day so that I could actually go to court on a case where I could not get out of finding coverage. Wow. Wow. A lot happening. I want to be home for this appointment. I'm finding, figuring out how to do that. My mother's friend is going to take care of my son for three days with my nurse because it was also Passover at this point and nobody from the U.S. could go. And my family in Mexico were all flying to other areas to be with their family members for the holiday. Yeah. So it was just a mess. And at this point, I'm also at my wits end. I've now moved uh, from the first Airbnb to my aunt's house to a second Airbnb to a third Airbnb. I am now on my fourth apartment place to live in Mexico City. Uh, My mother, thank God, is back in Mexico City with me. She is healthy. So I am no longer alone because I was alone for about two weeks. And that was extremely difficult. And actually, during those two weeks, one of my brothers was kind enough to come out and be with me for about four or five days just so that I wouldn't be alone. My significant other at this point um, had come out to Mexico to see me once right after my son was born and actually proposed. Um, But uh, he could not come back out because of his profession. He couldn't take more time off. So I was alone and thank God for family. And at this point, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know anything from the lawyers. They're dragging their feet. I'm not hearing anything. I'm freaking out. And my mother and I, at that point, my parents had asked a friend of theirs if there's anything he could do to help us. And he had put us in touch with Senator Gardner of Colorado's office. We were talking to them and they were trying to help me any way they could from a political perspective. And what I knew at that point was that the U.S. Embassy had said that there were two routes that I could take. And one of them was basically to take the current birth certificate, uh, have my son use the gestational carrier's name as his last name, have her sign the American passport, and then give me a letter saying that I could travel with him to the United States. Which doesn't really make sense to me because that would indicate that she's the legal parent and then what do I do in the U.S. with this child that I'm not the legal parent of? And the other one was to get a parentage order, but there was a statement in there that they wanted a new birth certificate issued. Unfortunately, no lawyer in Mexico would tell me how that would be done because that would mean that they'd have to void out the first one and get a new one. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. And so I'm freaking out trying to get clarification from the embassy directly I am not getting anywhere. I can't get in touch with the women who run the passport office that I had met with who were American and the woman who told me that they thought the first certificate was fraud. I couldn't get a hold of them because their lower level employees 
weren't giving me an appointment with them and then just kept responding to emails saying, you have all the information. You can't meet with them until oh. you get these documents. Oh. So at this point, I'm freaking out. Um, and my mother and I are sitting one night after my son's asleep talking about what do we do? Do we need to hire an attorney in the United States to help us? Do we need to find someone who can help us politically? Like, what do we do? And there is a lawyer in Denver that we were talking about trying to figure out how to get a hold of him, who we both know, but not well, who's extremely expensive. So we didn't really want to hire him. And at that point, I said, you know what? I have over 1,200 friends on Facebook. What if somebody can help me? I'm going to make a plea. And at about 10 o'clock at night, I posted on Facebook for the first time ever asking people for help. And I basically said, listen, my, my Facebook family, I have met all of you. You all know me. I have this beautiful son. I'm pregnant. I'm actually not sure if I said that I was pregnant at that point. Because I, I, no, I did not uh-huh. say I was pregnant because my, hus- my future husband did not really want me to put that on Facebook. So I just said, I have this beautiful son. We want to come back to the United States. Well, I can travel freely. He cannot we are having problems and I need to find a way into the U.S. State Department in order to talk to someone above the American embassies in Mexico's head to try to figure out what is going on. Who do I know who has connections? Within one hour of that being posted at 10 o'clock at night in Mexico City, I started to get emails, Facebook posts. I can try to help you. I had one friend who works in D.C. who immediately wrote me and said, I work for this nonprofit. I know a lot of governor, senators and House of Representatives tell me exactly what you need. So I started emailing separately and apart outside of Facebook. Anybody who on Facebook told me that they could help. As a result of within about 24 hours, I had um, been put in touch with, well, 24 to 36 hours. I had spent the following day basically just sending emails to people who through Facebook had asked for the full story because I did not post the whole story on Facebook. And within about 48 hours, I had been put in touch with Senator Bennett's office as well. So now I had both Senator Bennett and Senator Gardner helping me. I had been put in touch with uh, Colorado's first man, gentleman, um, and he was directly <sighs> emailing me. Wow. And he was, yeah. he basically heard my story and said that he was going to speak to everyone that he personally knew at the House of Representatives in oh. D.C. because our governor here in Colorado had been a U.S. representative and that he was going to ensure that the governor knew my story as well. I'd also been put back in touch. I'd been reminded that my constitutional law professor was now a House of Representative. I got in touch with his offices. His offices was also trying to help me. And then on the other side, a few of my friends knew people or were working at State Department. And so I had called about six different people at State Department And one of the most random and most amazing people that I was put in touch with by, I believe, coincidence was the director of foreign affairs for the U.S. State Department. Wow. Wow. I I got a hold of him initially through LinkedIn um, because the person who put me, gave me his his name uh, through Facebook, had his contact through LinkedIn. He immediately responded via email. And put me in touch with the head of the U.S. Passport Division of the State Department. Oh, wow. Wow. He apparently got my story. I don't know what happened. What I can tell you is that I believe I started all of this on Monday night at 10 o'clock. It was a Monday night at 10 o'clock p.m. 
on Friday at three o'clock, I was walking actually to my son's pediatrician to get a letter from him by myself. My mother was with my son who was sleeping and I got a call from the U.S. Embassy saying, we're giving you, <laughs> and it still makes me so um, emotional, but they told me that they were going to give me a temporary passport saying that I was the legal parent um, and that I could come back home. Oh, my God. Oh. Did you change direction and go straight to the passport <laughs> to the embassy <laughs> right that second? Uh, they couldn't have me go in that minute because they close at 4 o'clock. Oh. Uh, Mexico City uh, has horrible traffic. <laughs> and so yeah, even if yeah, I would have gotten into a cab at that minute, there was no way at three o'clock in the afternoon I could have made it to the U.S. Embassy. Made it, right? yeah. um, so they gave me an appointment for the next, it was Friday, so I had to wait until Monday, but I had an appointment at, I think, 8 a.m. on Monday to go oh in my God. Um, oh. and get the passport. Um, they, wow. Yeah, so I was completely emotional. I got the letter from my pediatrician that I needed, which actually, ironically enough, was a letter to get my son's Mexican passport, because my thought at that point was, I need at least something, (laughs) Um, which I never did end up getting. I went home, and we had already scheduled to come back for three days. My mom and I had that ticket home for three days for Passover. We were able to then add my son to the the reservation, Mm. which is how he came home. Yeah. The most emotional trip I've ever had. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did go to the American embassy on Monday. And of course, I had had to get a letter from my lawyer saying that the process was still ongoing. We were waiting for the documents. Um, And that's when I found out that the case had not yet been assigned to any judge. Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) um, At that point, I gave the American (coughs) embassy everything I had. Um, which included a letter from the lawyers that it had been submitted. There was uh, the court system's internal computer system has had been down. So we had some sort of documentation of that and that I would keep the American embassy apprised of everything. So the next day they did some more research. Again, I was on edge all day Monday because they were like, well, and hemming and hawing and Then they did end up giving me the passport on Tuesday morning. My flight out was Thursday. And uh, so I did get it. And eventually I did get the documents from uh, Mexico, from the court saying that I was the legal parent. I did get my parentage order. It was was translated into English. I did supply that with the translation to the American embassy on about June 1st. Okay. I was going to ask how long after you actually got home, like if you had to wait still, you would have been stuck there another uh, month, well, I, I guess. Well, I came home on April. I think it was like April 19th. Okay. We did not get the paperwork oh, until so. March, uh, like yeah, June 1st. Oh, and the wow. U.S. Embassy, yeah, the, the State Department accepted it as valid on June 3rd or 4th is when I got the email back saying that they've accepted it and that everything is now legal, that the birth certificate is legal, that I'm the legal parent and everything else. It was extremely nerve wracking. Um, sort of as a side note, I was getting married on June 16th. And my oh. husband and I had decided to get married on the beach in Mexico. Oh my God. In Mexico, oh. ironically. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. And did you bring your son? You're like, I am not taking you back to Mexico ever. (laughs) We decided that even though at that point everything had been finalized, um, we didn't want to chance anything. And I still had the temporary passport for him that expired in July. I didn't want to chance it. So I actually left him with my nanny uh, in the United States for about four days uh, while my husband and I got married. (laughs) 
in Mexico. Wow. And all of this, I'm still pregnant. So, right? <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So the, right. the key here is that if you're going to do international surrogacy, make sure you use a company that um, does start the legal process while the surrogate is pregnant. Uh, my understandings from speaking to a few people is that there are agencies who have created a made-up path through the Mexican legal system to get these types of parentage orders. Because I was a Mexican citizen, nobody had told me about it. I mean, I feel like the lesson is to have really well-connected right. things. That too. <laughs> no? um, I did profusely thank the person who connected me to the head of the external affairs at State Department. Uh, I think I have thanked her 12 times. Um, she's like, I think two of these. Here's one more. Yeah. 13. And, thank and you. 14. I thank you too. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes. And I will tell you, we did finally get my son's, uh, formal passport. Actually, we didn't end up to, to, to applying for it until, uh, December. I did get it earlier this month. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, because you, you know, we just wanted to have that done, but I had been so traumatized by the process. I hadn't been able to get myself to do it. Right. And uh, that pregnancy, or how did that uh, the pregnancy. end up? Are you, are you still pregnant a year later? <laughs> <Yeah>. later. <laughs> um, I did give birth to a beautiful baby girl in August. Aww, and uh, she is six months old and her brother is 12 months old. He's a year. And so Aww. we have a wonderful family of uh, mother, father, and two children. Wow. And my husband uh, yeah. is started the process to formally adopt my son. Yeah. So you have the, the totally traditional right. family, just a very non-traditional right. path. <laughs> so I did have two children at the age of 41 because my son was born a week after my 41st birthday. My daughter was born while I was 41. So two children yeah. at 41, uh, one completely naturally with no help and the other one with the help of amazing, of help. amazing doctors people. and people yeah. and the support of all my friends and family. That's an incredible story, Carolyn. Um, this was a long episode for us, but so, so worth it. Such an amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. And we are so happy that there was a happy ending as well. Well, and I appreciate both of you. And I've been listening to the podcast and love it. So keep up the wonderful work. We appreciate it so much. Thank you to Carolyn Topelson for joining us, for sharing her amazing story. Um, I was really excited. Even this morning, I got to see her on a Zoom call with one of her babies looking at Aww. her. Uh, Yay. to our listeners during the intro, and probably right now, you'll get to hear some random screaming and piano playing in the background where I thought I timed this right, where you wouldn't hear all my hey. background, but it- this is the real world. Welcome to COVID-19 world where we all have our, <gasps> all of our families surrounding us lovingly every second, yes. every noisy, Ex- extra noisy, time. messy second of every day, right? Yes. <laughs> that is okay. <sighs> um, but the people we do not get to spend every noisy second with, you know, of course, are our team who are working remotely from us and we still appreciate them greatly. Um, so a huge, huge thanks to Tyler Ellis, to Amanda, to Lexi, Oh gosh, who else? Who am I missing besides, of course, Chris? Um, Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who is incredible and always makes us sound incredible, and we really appreciate them hanging with us through, <laughs> through through all of this, whether near or far. So, and thank you to all of us for, for being with us, and we hope that we've 
at least brighten a little bit of your day through through some difficulties. So, and maybe go nice. ahead and just do a sympathy five star review on iTunes, right? <laughs> exactly. Going through, <laughs> bring a little light <laughs> to the world, right? Yes, be be our light to our world. <laughs> oh, thank you all so much for listening. Mm-hmm.